Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you late, late in Bushwick, Brooklyn, but still live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday around noon, around noon, right? Somewhere around there. Uh, we got, uh, we got. What uh, if primetime TV was like at noonish? <laughs> at noonish. Well, there's a reason that we're never nominated for Beard Awards. Maybe it's, <laughs> yeah. maybe it's because. Maybe it's that, yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's my tardiness. I don't know. Nastasha's usually here on time. Jack, you're usually here on time. Evan, Evan, just me. Just me. <laughs> just me, you know? J-Train sucks. J- well, J-Train sucks, and what, you know, look, not that there's an excuse, but I'm trying to get as much kind of work on thinking about the questions and whatnot beforehand as I can get in, uh, you know, beforehand. So I'm pushing it always to the last second, so then if there's any problem with the train at all, I'm roop-doop super late like I am today. Uh, but we're going to be joined on the phone, Correct. Uh, yes. Oh, yeah, we are. With, uh, yeah, Chris Young of Chef Steps. He was going to be here in person, but due to a scheduling you remember, uh, listeners of this show will know that my son Booker take, took the word you which is a station here on our uh, fine subway system, and uh, uh, repurposed the word to mean cluster, beep, beep, and it, it suits that purpose quite well, I think, Stiles, right? Mm-hmm. Chris, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you this morning, Dave? Doing all right, and I'm kind of uh, lucky. You know, another reason I'm late. I spent uh, myself uh, time armoring this morning. I'm glad you're not in the studio because I heard today is National Smack a Cook in the Groin with a Spoon Day. That's a that's an official holiday, or just one you made up? Well, I did just make it up, but I imagine that it could be like an official day. It's the back of the spoon, people, not the front. Don't be animals about it. Uh, really? Oh, it's yeah, it's an old honored tradition of cooks walking around with a cooking spoon, not one that you're cooking with, and you smack another cook in the in, with the back of the spoon in the groin. Not hard, people. I find it actually incredibly unpleasant, and yet it happens all the time. You know? Chris, back me up on this. Uh, I'm I'm actually completely befuddled. What kitchens oh, have you been hanging oh, out you, in? Oh, you liars. <laughs> liars. You could get fired for that. Uh, well, I told you, I don't practice it. I don't practice that. And, and you know, it's not, it, no, it's not really, it's, I mean, why? Because it's assault? Yeah, and sexual harassment. Uh, oh, it's usually, it's, yeah, it's not, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. As I said, this is why I spent extra time armoring, because I find it unpleasant. I don't like getting <laughs> tapped in the groin. Um, I, I, re- I really want to see a video of a day in the life of, uh, of, of Dave Arnold. Yeah? I, I think that would be very popular. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't there, know. Is, there is one online. I can't remember who. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, if most of... If, if you most, Google that, you'll If most it. anyone saw what Stas and I did uh, most days, they'd be like, oh. <laughs> My life isn't so bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> Excuse me. Call your questions for Chris Young in two... 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. But Chris, before we get to serious, t- actually, you want to do some serious technical crap first? Because uh, I had a bunch of people, um, you know, tweet in their kitchen peeves this morning, and I might have some more in uh, during the break. I don't know. We'll go over those. Maybe we should hit some questions first. Some stuff that I think you might be especially uh, good at. 
Um, we had a question in uh, from... Uh, here we go. Will Freeman, and if you, if you haven't researched this, just tell me, uh, at rebelcat underscore one. Uh, I want to make a creamer for hot and cold beverages based on oil emulsified with egg and no dairy. How to prevent it breaking. And I, I don't know whether they mean by breaking, like uh, keeping it liquid and stopping it from breaking there, or they mean feathering, you know, what you know, the creamers feather when they go out into... Uh, into uh, into coffees and whatnot. Um, I will say before I turn you loose on this, uh, Chris, I mean, you might not have anything to say about it, I don't know, is that it seems to me from like just very preliminary uh, research that the secret actually lies into something that I know you, Chris, work on quite a bit, which is um, which is uh, salts like citrates and phosphates, uh, which uh, because typically these creamers are doped with casein uh, right. to, to add the – and so presumably because they have the casein in them – they need uh, the emulsifying salts or whatever you want to call them, melting salts, whatever, citrates, polyphosphates, whatever, uh, to keep them from feathering out when they go into suits. But if it's going to be literally no dairy, in other words, no casein, then we need to figure out some other kind of creamy-looking bulking agent to put into it to give it that, uh, you know, that, that milkiness along with maybe some additional stabilizers other than the less thin and the, and the, uh, and the other uh, phospholipid crabs that are in the, the egg yolk. Any thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, obviously casein would be the go-to emulsifier. I mean, what you, what you really need here is a good emulsifier system. Uh, you know, cream and milk is a bunch of, of, of butterfat droplets coated in, in casein proteins, which do a pretty nice job of, uh, of keeping that emulsion suspended. So I'm guessing when he's talking about breaking, we're really talking about preventing phase separation. Well, it's a liquid. Remember, though, he's not, he doesn't want any dairy in it at all, so we need another right. substitute for, so, for, for milk powder. So, if we, so, you know, if, if you can't use casein... Um, um, uh, you know, my instinct would be to go to a combination. You're going to need some emulsifiers, and you're going to need a homogenizer to, to do this. And, and what I would be looking for are, I'd probably go to, like, sucrose esters. Um, th- I think those will do a pretty, in my experience, those will do a pretty good job of coating most plant oils. And so the way I would do it is I'd, I'd disperse... Um, some sucrose esters, uh, which I think the El Bulli makes a texture align. Those are probably readily av- available. They call um, it sucro, yeah. Yeah, and, and so that's probably a blend of, of different ones. Which is a dumbass name for sucro esters, by the way. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make no comment about uh, about El Bulli's naming scheme uh, on, a, on a radio show, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love him. I love that. I'm just saying that's a dumb name, especially in English. It sounds like too many other things. Uh, look, my my big complaint with any of those products is they don't tell you what exactly is in them. But yeah. you know, so it's not that they're bad products, people. We're not saying anything about the products or the people. I just don't like the name. So, so I, I would start off by taking your your your, your oil, whatever you're going to use, and I would emulsify. I would disperse some something like a sucrose ester in that, and then I would, under really high shear, or if you have a homogenizer, that would be great. I'd emulsify that into uh, your your liquid uh, to, to form an emulsion. And I, would, I don't think lecithin or glyce or some of the other ones would work terribly well, but when I've done, uh, I've done some constructed creams, if we go back to the, to the work we did at Modernist Cuisine, uh, uh, stuff that didn't get published, there was a lot of good work with sucroesters for constructed creams. So I think that'd be a pretty productive direction to go. If you can use casein, I, your life will be much easier because getting sodium caseinate is much easier than sort of tracking down Sucroesters. Right. And so just to kind of uh, just to kind of parse out what's going on here for people that, you know, 
don't play this kind of game regularly. If you go and just research patent literature on uh, creamers, you'll see that, in fact, they do have mono and diglycerides in them as one of the main um, things that's added, How along with lecithin. However, they have also casein in their formulation, and mono and diglycerides muy, muy, muy cheaper than sucroester. And so, yeah. you know, sucrose, sucroesters are not by any stretch, the cheapest of ingredients to use. And that's why, in general, in food industry, they're only used in situations where they're really necessary, not necessarily in, in, in every situation where they might kick some serious uh, butt. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, Chris. Yeah, no, sucroesters are, are high-end and, and, and fairly expensive, but they work really well. So um, I, I can probably be a little more specific here since I'm actually pulling up some of I, – I, see, I was sensible. I put my laptop in front of me. Um, and I would be saying you're looking for something like a sucroester with a what's called an HLB value of around 10, and you're probably looking at about 0.5% by weight. Um, but if you don't have that, something like uh, a blend of monoglycerides and lecithin, maybe like 0.2 and 0.2% uh, of both of those blended into your oil, that'll do a pretty good job of stabilizing the mixture. Right, but remember everyone, well, we have a caller we're going to get to. When we get back, maybe a short word because we got a lot to get to on what uh, HLB is, the balance, uh, and also on the fact that you know not all lecithins made the same. But right now, caller, you're on the air. Hi, Dave and gang and Chris. Um, I didn't know Chris would be uh, on the show today, and it's a really good surprise. Um, I just had a few questions I hope uh, to, to bust out. Uh, my first question is about ultrasonic baths. I just recently picked up a Branson 5510, and it is a dirty, dirty used ultrasonic bath. And I know that Chris does some work with cavitation and french fries and stuff, and I wanted to kind of get up to that, and I was uh, wondering what I would need to uh, maybe clean it, uh, maybe neutralize some of the nasties. I, I love uh, that the ultrasonic there. bath is dirty. That's the most hilarious thing ever. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's dusty. I picked it up from a shop uh, from a specialist who makes dry diaphragm pumps, and he just is a really small niche in California here just doing that. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's super used and dirty, so I was wondering if um, what I well, would need. So, well, before, like, before I turn you guys loose, let our listeners know, uh, ultrasonic bath uh, used for cleaning things and for other operations that you guys are going to talk about in a minute. Um the smaller ones that you can buy inexpensively are jewelry cleaners. Typically, they're sold at, uh, you know, to home folks. Branson is a manufacturer uh, of ones that are in industry and in life sciences, and they also build much larger, more powerful ultrasounds for welding. Tell them how many liters this one holds so we have an idea what size. Uh, this one's like two and a half gallons, so it's actually kind of big, bigger than the ones that I've seen before, but um, still kind of small, I guess. But, All right, go. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, so so this came from somebody just doing, like, uh, um, probably metal cleaning or some sort of parts. You're not going to have to worry about like getting the Geiger counter out and making sure this this wasn't used for some sort of nefarious radioactive purpose. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, that 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 that's good news. Um, usually, what I would do for cleaning this is probably start out uh, if you can get some some lye, uh, essentially a drain cleaner. I would disperse mm-hmm. some of that in water and start off with an alkaline wash, which will help uh, which will help uh, get some of the what I'm guessing are sort of metal filings and fines off it. And then I would drain that out, switch over to uh, an acid, something like muriatic acid, which you can get at Home Depot would be a good choice. And then after that, just wash really well with the detergent. And by the way, lye if there is some sort of biological contaminant in there, lye will eat it. Yep. 
Awesome. And so you can awesome. you can you can get both of those at at Home Depot. And so you just want to start off with a with a good alkaline wash, then then drain it out, neutralize it with some uh, or just just wash it with some water, then go to an acid wash, and after that, just detergent. Be careful when you make lye solutions. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. They, if you, you want to do this one, Dave? No, no. You, you go. Go ahead. Go ahead. Really important order of addition. Really, really important. Do not dump your water onto a giant pile of lye. Yeah, it, it gets very hot. Uh, also, wow. lie like label the hell out of it. I've gotten really badly damaged by unlabeled lie, and um, you know I like having lie. If you can get some food grade and you know do some of the amazing work that you can do with lie in the kitchen as well. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'll add, just in case, because I like to kill everything, I finish everything off with a good bleach rinse. Let it sit yeah. and, and then uh, and then blast mm. out. You're going to have a little mm. more. Is this one of the ones with uh, the metal outside or the uh, molded plastic outside? It's like the molded. It looks like polypropylene uh, cooler yeah. kind of material or something. Yeah, that can so be a, a pain good, to bleach, clean. good bleach wash on that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Also, like if there's weird and crusty stuff, at least mine can be completely disassembled, including removing the seal that seals between the plastic and the stainless steel. Uh, thing that's uh, holding it together. You just want to be careful to not dump a bunch of... At least the one I have has the uh, transducers bonded to the inside of a stainless steel tank on the inside that's then sealed to the underside of the plastic lip. And all of that can be gotten into if there's anything really nasty. But I'd avoid doing that unless you really like doing that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for that question. Um, Hopefully I can blow through just another one real quickly. Uh, Another thing I'll be cleaning in my ultrasonic bath will be uh, glassware. And um, for the uh, Rotovap, I was recently able to piece together in the last couple months. It's great for um, that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. and I was going to ask, so what detergent, um, do, you, do you buy those detergents that they use uh, with the uh, ultrasonic bath, or do you, do you just do, like, hot water and cavitate it for, like, you know, 20, 30 minutes? If you can get some phosphate solutions into the water with a little a little bit of detergent, uh, you will get very clean glassware. You know, one of the one of the unfortunate things, or fortunate depending on how environmentally conscious you are, is we removed phosphates from from dishwasher detergent uh, a couple mm. of years back, and uh, unfortunately, phosphates are really good at, at uh, sort of removing hard water stains and letting the glassware drain and dry very, very clear. So literally some tripolyphosphate, maybe like half a percent dissolved in water, is going to do wonders for cleaning your glassware. Alkanox still has it, doesn't it? Uh, probably, yeah, there's almost certainly commercial uh, commercial ones are going to have it. Uh, actually, espresso cleaner uh, essentially will have a good mixture of, of citric acid and phosphates. So those would be good choices. Huh. But if you just go get like a, a, a consumer dishwashing detergent, it's gone. Awesome. Um, thank you. Uh, also, I recently read Head to Tail, um, the article of Head to Tail Dis- Distillation by Dave, and um, I was really intrigued of how he was able to set up his manifold system um, and how he had a coil condenser. My question is real quick, is it, do, is it necessary for me um, to get a coil condenser for that setup with the peristaltic pump? What do you, because... have, what do you have now? Do you have a cold finger, con- I mean, do you have a cold finger condenser? I went with the cold finger because it was a little cheaper and a little easier with dry ice. Um, and I've noticed that the distillate does kind of freeze a little bit. Um, initially, and I think that's what the problem was, right? Is that it, it wouldn't drip drip down at like uh, at a good rate. I started off life with a uh, with a coil condenser, and then moved to a cold finger condenser, not for reasons of economy, but for reasons uh, that I, I couldn't distill alcohol in uh, in a commercial environment uh, 
without endangering you know my partner's liquor license, which is kind of not right. And I, I wanted a way to do it legally, and to mm. to effectively distill some of the flavors that we want uh, in water and not have them get totally you know <clears throat> just ripped out with the vacuum even before you can taste it the first time. You need to have an extremely high temperature delta between the distillation temperature and the condensing temperature. And so I yeah. moved to the cold fingers so that I could do that. Dry ice is really – dry ice is so powerful that one of the problems that you're going to note when you're using dry ice in a cold finger condenser is – It's uh, really thick. Yeah, and uh, you, you're going to – like the, the actual uh, vacuum, the vacuum takeoff area tends to get uh, clogged with ice crystals – more than when you use, let's say, liquid nitrogen. So I found that actually distillation using dry ice as the cooling source is vastly cheaper uh, and more efficient mm-hmm. than using liquid nitrogen because liquid nitrogen is relatively uh, has relatively low amount of chilling power compared to dry ice on a pound per pound wow. basis. But um, it, I find that it's vastly easier uh, to use because once your uh, vacuum um, once your vacuum column freezes, once you no longer can suck a vacuum because of ice crystal occlusion in the lines, you're done. Uh, and so uh, I found that happened a lot. So you need to be really careful when you're starting a distillation with dry ice that before you add dry ice to your uh, condenser, that you suck a partial vacuum on the cold finger. And you do mm-hmm. that so that you don't have a lot of moisture from the atmosphere condensing up near the, the, the top of the condenser, which is where the, the vacuum takeoff port is, which gets clogged very easily. So you want to suck a partial vacuum, not enough to do any major distillation, right? Then you want to add uh, your dry ice and your alcohol, let it cool down. Then you want to start your, your actual hardcore primary distillation. And you need to be sure that you don't boil over because if you boil over and you have to break your system to clean it before you continue your distillation, then all hell breaks loose, especially with the, with the dry ice. It takes forever to, to warm the condenser back up, and it's a huge pain in the butt. Now, you can get around that by using a bump flask. Now, none of this, is, yeah. none of this has answered your actual qu- – or fritted. I actually think fritted is better than a bump flask, but very few people use the fritted uh, inserts between the uh, – in, um, in the what's it called? In the vapor duct. But – can you can you use a bump trap on your uh, the beaker flask that you have? Because I actually picked up that same beaker flask, but the whole thing seems super long, rotating, and it, it, it's wobbling a little bit. Yeah, the beaker and, flask has issues. You have to be extremely careful with the beaker beaker flask. Uh, they're prone to failure. So what we're talking about here, folks, is there's a uh, the fla- a beaker flask allows you to open and close a beaker so that you can uh, literally put your fist inside of where the product is, and it's fantastic if you're going to dry something out. It makes it a lot easier to clean. The issues with the beaker flask are uh, that um, they are relatively slow to ramp up and down temperature-wise because the glass is thicker, and the seal where the beaker itself is tends to get wonky with time. So you want to make sure you want to run a really good vacuum test dry before you do anything to make sure that you can get the sucker down to the vacuum levels you need. Um, uh, but ju- just to answer your – and yes, you can use a bump flask with that. It will all hold itself together, but it becomes more precarious if some knucklehead walks and goes, what's this? And hits it with their hand. You know what I mean? Uh, what, what, which it happens. Believe me. Uh, but what you um, – your, to your first question, you can do some fractionation. Um, when you have a system like that, but a large amount of stuff is frozen onto the side of your condenser, and so you can't really do accurate fractionation with uh, that kind of a setup. What you can do, it's a huge pain in the ass, but you can use a eutectic uh, salt mixture, and you can you can hit a temperature somewhere closer to like 
minus 20 C, something there. And there you can do some really hardcore good fractionation, but it's just a lot more difficult to maintain uh, temperatures, uh, especially because the actual volume of that uh, condenser is quite low. So you'd be better off uh, maintaining something. You can buy a – and you have to run a condenser colder for a given level of separation because the surface area is not as great as a coil. All right. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you can buy slash jerry rig uh, something that allows you to just pump cold stuff into your cold finger and siphon it out. So you can sit there and just with a thermometer or a circulator keep a, 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 an alcohol bath at, or a glycol bath at like minus 20 and then use a pump siphon system to constantly refresh the cold finger. And you can do that for like 30 bucks, especially if you what? already have a circulator. Wow, that's good news. Uh that is great. That's great. Uh, then my sorry. My next question is the 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 con- condensation is that on the outside of the condenser? Because remember, it's important for it to be two thirds up the way the condenser, and I can't really see it on the cold finger. Um, are you looking for the condensation on the outside of the condenser by chance? Yeah. Well, you look for both. It depends on what you're doing. In in a in a in a in a cold finger. Uh, it, most of the time when you're doing distillation, it's much easier to see a, a water vapor line than an alcohol vapor line. But you're looking for uh, condensation on the glass itself on the outside. And in a coil condenser, you're looking for the drip lines where the drips are starting on the coil coming down. And you can kind uh, of see where the melt zones are in a, uh, in, a, in a cold finger condenser to find out if you're melting very high up. It means you're losing temperature and, you're, and, you're just, and your, your condensation line is too high. You'll just get a feel for it uh, over time. Another really good way, this is why dry ice is problematic because it tends to freeze everything up and make it, things difficult to, to see. But uh, if you just put the like the two ba- the back of your fingers against or the back of your hand against the um, uh, against the outside glass and feel up and down, you can get a feel for where the line is by temp. That makes sense. Yeah. If, if the condenser itself gets too hot, I've noticed it, it seems like it's redistilling near the vapor duct and a little puddle is forming. I don't think I'm bumping. I might, I might be bumping a little bit, but um, I think it, is that possible for if like the outside of the condenser feels too warm, then you'll get um, um, that problem. Well, you should melt off the tip. The tip of the cold finger on the inside should be liquid at all times when you're distilling. Oh, okay. Um, and to do that, would you have to use like 200 proof alcohol by chance? No, water. And it, the, the fact of the matter is, is that you're, you're, it takes so much energy, so much energy to recondense steam that almost no, there's no coolant that is powerful enough at full distillation rates to keep solid ice at the tip of a cold finger. That I've used. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. Sorry for hogging up the time. Uh, I really love Chef Steps, and you're doing some great work, Chris. Um, yeah, it's awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thank Fantastic. You. Thank you. Uh, all right, so back really quickly uh, before we take a break, which we should do. Uh, let's just give them a quick thing on uh, hydrophobic, uh, lipophobic, uh, or philic, however, balance, <laughs> and uh, the difference in less, less, less the thins go. Uh, the, the simple idea is a hydrophobic lipophilic balance is just a measurement of how much more a particular emulsifier prefers to be in what we'll call the oil phase versus the water phase or the aqueous phase. And depending on what you're trying to emulsify, you often want an emulsifier to be more in oil or more in water. And there are two forms of lecithin 
are usually de-oiled and oiled lecithin, and they have very, very different uh, hydrophobic lipophilic balances. Um, I'm trying to remember the numbers off my head. You, you might, you seem to, you seem to retain numbers much better than I do. Uh, no, Dave. because I tend not to. I mean, like I tend not to use them so much, so I never really grain them into my into my head. But any supplier of repute will tell you the number. Yeah, and and what within it, if you start really calling around, you'll find out that they can be custom tailored a lot. In fact, I believe there's a whole thread uh, on HLB values and lecithin on the Chef Steps forum, um, which is a much better and, and more reliable source of information than than my brain off the top of my head. The main thing to know is that not all lecithins are created equal, and assuming that you can substitute them from one recipe to another. Uh, isn't necessarily going to work if you don't really have a good idea of what the HLB value was of the particular lecithin being used. And, and that goes for any of these kind of ingredients that are, I don't know, there, there's not really a good word for these ingredients. I'm going to call them highly tweaked ingredients. Uh, sure, technical ingredients. Yeah, technical, that's a good one. Technical ingredients. Any one of these technical ingredients tends to be highly tweaked out. And one, just because they share the same name as another doesn't mean they perform in the same way as another. And the, the analogy I always used to use is that, yeah, pretty much like flowers will all kind of work the same when you're thickening a sauce because you're using really blunt, blunt instrument type of functionality when you're doing that. But most of the work that we're doing with these technical ingredients, much more like scalpel work. And for that, you really yeah. need to know exactly what is going on. Sure. And, and I suppose I should actually be a little more useful as I think about this. Uh, so I sort of skipped over this. But, you know, the HLB range runs from 0 to 18. And if you're doing a water dispersed into oil emulsion, you're generally going to be looking for an emuls- uh, emulsifier with an HLB value of something like 4 to maybe 5 or 6. And if you're trying to do an oil and water emulsion, you really want something that's more like 8 to 18. And so lecithins, uh, your, your, your oiled lecithins tend to have a, an HLB value of, I think it's like 9 is, is a pretty common one. And that makes it pretty good for oil and water emulsion, but not very good for a water and oil emulsion. If you were to use a de-oiled lecithin, you'd probably find one with an HLB of 5. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what's interesting about lecithins and why they really don't uh, work one to the other to substitute back and forth because they straddle the line and they could be on either side of that line, which is, yep. uh, and you know, it's like, it's like, uh, for those of you that care about this stuff, it's like low acyl and high acyl gel in. They're both gel in, but they couldn't have radic, they couldn't have more different textures. I mean, mm-hmm. you could not have two more different textures than high acyl and low acyl gel in. Anyway, yeah, let's take, no. let's take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with Chris Young from Chef Stops. <laughs> has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. 
Oh, yeah. Back with Cooking Issues and Chris Young. Chris, we got another caller with a question. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, guys. This is uh, Judah from Maryland. How are you? Doing all right. How you doing? Hi, Judah. Uh, so I actually have a very quick and probably simple question uh, about pressure cooker mechanics. Uh, and, and I didn't realize Chris was going to be on the show today, but it's about one of the recipes from uh, Myers Cuisine at Home. The, uh, so I, so I will say the, that uh, I, I was not involved in the recipe development for Myers Cuisine at Home. I'd left to start Chef Steps by then, but go on. Oh, okay. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure you could probably help anyways. Um, so a big crowd favorite is the, uh, the buffalo wings, the uh, chicken wings with the buffalo oil, or the buffalo sauce, I'm sorry. Yeah. And... Um, in that recipe, so there, there's two variations. Either you could do it in a pressure cooker, you know, in canning jars, or they say you could just simmer it, uh, all the ingredients on a stove, um, in oil for about half an hour. So the differential is they, they say, uh, full pressure, uh, at 10 minutes, for 10 minutes, uh, in the, in the jars, mm-hmm. or on the stovetop, you know, for a half hour. So I, it just got me wondering, like, you're cooking the oil on the stove. I'm, I'm sure that the, the temperature, is probably close to around 250 at low, you know, low heat on the stove. Um, so what's going on in, inside the pressure cooker that's actually shortening, would be shortening? Okay. Oh, Chris, so I know much. you're itching to answer this one. I can feel you over the phone. Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to crawl out of my skin. Um, <laughs> so so there's, there's a few things. The first thing to realize is it really doesn't matter very much what your oil temperature is on the stove. Uh, presuming you're at reasonable atmospheric pressure around sea level, your food's filled with a bunch of water, those chicken wings, and so it can't be hotter than 212 degrees Fahrenheit, 100 degrees Celsius uh, at, at normal atmospheric pressure because until all the water's gone, you're stuck at the boiling point. The hotter the oil, the faster the water will be evaporated from the food, but that's all that changes. The core temperature doesn't get any hotter. Pressure cookers allow you to raise the boiling point of the water, which means you can actually get the core temperature of the food higher because as you raise the pressure, boiling point goes up, just like as you decrease pressure, boiling point goes down. And so the, the basic rule of thumb I tend to carry around is you're trying to convert collagen into tender gelatin. And more oh, so this, less, let, me, let me just uh, correct yeah. you real quick. So this is for the, for the, um, the spiced oil that goes into the, the buffalo sauce, not for the actual wings. Oh, not for, the actual, not for the actual thing. Okay, but, so but we'll, in, in any, If there's any liquid in the products at all, the only way to alter the temperature on the inside of that product to accelerate any processes is by applying pressure. Right. So it's a lot of onion and a lot of garlic. So uh, I'm yeah. Sure so there's uh, there's a reasonable amount of water in those. Wait. Do they change the amount of onion and garlic based on which technique you use? No, no, no. They just change the time. Whoa. Really? Yeah. No. All right. Yeah. So I've tried it so, both ways. I mean, it's it's a similar product uh, both times. But would you suggest? like bumping up the onion when you're doing the pressure cooker? That, I mean, like, the problem with bulking onion is you bulk... The problem with bulking onion in a pressure cook recipe, which I do on a regular basis, is that you're adding a lot of extra water to it because you're not getting mm-hmm. rid of the water in a pressure cooking situation, but pressure cooking radically uh, lessens the characteristic flavors of onion and leaves more of, the, of a kind of standard sweet root vegetable flavor to them. Is that your experience as well, Chris? Yeah, that tends to be – that's a pretty good description of it. Yeah, which I like for some things. Like I, I make a pizza sauce that's half garlic, half oil, and I do it by pressure cooking. Um, you know, um, and I – you know, but I found that, for instance, I 
you know, I, I, I like combinations of pressure cooked onions to, for bulk and regular cooked onions when I actually want onion flavors like, for instance, onion soup. Um, well, there's, there's going to be another difference you, ha- you have going on here. So uh, I, I don't think there's a terribly simple explanation. I think uh, – so I, I, now that I understand the question, you're sort of – it'd be nice if there was a, a simple answer. I think one of the factors that's going on is inside a pressure cooker, you're in a semi-sealed environment. That means some of your volatiles are not being vented as rapidly as they would be on a stovetop, and you're going to tend to retain more of those in the oil uh, than you than you would in a in a stovetop. So that would be certainly one of the reasons I think you get to a similar product faster. Uh, Dave, you have any? You're the, you're the distillation expert. I felt I was like I was listening to Walter White a few minutes ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I should end so well as Walter White. Just kidding. I just saw the last one. Whatever. Anyway, I don't want to ruin that for anyone. But um, the. Uh, uh, yeah, and I mean, look, for years I've also worried about pressure cookers that vent. Presumably there's no real reason other than uh, volatiles could, could be why uh, the venting's an issue, which is why I thought, you know, your original idea, Chris, of putting things in jars was kind of a genius idea, mm-hmm. aside from the, just the preservation standpoint. Yeah, so and, and so, you know, there's no question you're retaining more volatiles. When you open the pressure cooker, I imagine you get a really, a really potent sulfurous aroma. Well, no, you know, that stuff is really destroyed in pressure cooking. And I, I emailed uh, Block, the guy who wrote the Garlic and Alliums book, and he – you know, about this and about like what's kind of going on. And there is some research on it, but he referred me to someone who could actually do the, 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 the chemical analysis of it. But they wanted to do it for money, and I didn't really have the money. They were going to do it on a per-sample basis because in, in normal cooking, right – you inactivate the uh, the enzymatic pathway to convert um, you know the non pungent precursors to the pungent uh, you know volatile stuff. Yeah, yep. sure. Uh, and I forget which it is, allicin to alanine, whatever it is. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, and they're all they're different for the different alliums. And, but if you do a normal cook on something and then blend in uncooked allium, those enzymes will still act on the precursors that are still there and create pungency. Whereas in pressure cooked products, that's not the case. In pressure cooked product, addition of fresh enzyme doesn't convert all of the stuff to the pungent. So there's something – and sulfur chemistry is incredibly complicated anyway. And so there, there's something going on there that I think is only – uh, empirically understood, let's say that means like cooks know it, but but I don't know that anyone knows exactly what's getting busted into what in a pressure cooker with um, with onions and garlic and leeks. I just know that it's it's complicated and that the that the the rate and nature of the change is not necessarily linear with time. So I know nope. if I want to completely obliterate those things, I push them for twenty minutes. So maybe ten minutes is the upper limit where you can retain some of the original character of the of the of the alliums. I don't know. You know, it's, it's 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 actually an interesting question. The way that recipe would have been developed literally was just very empirical. Try things and and, and see what sort of gives a close approximation. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry, we don't have a better answer. All right. No, it's fine. It's mainly just about the cooking times, but uh, yeah, it was uh, interesting to hear about the onions as well. Cool. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank All right, you. Chris. I got another okay. one for you. J.E. Khan writes in on the Twitter, want to give my hot sauce, a real fermented sauce, by the way, not just a pepper puree, uh, some heft. Should I use modified starch or xanthan and why? Or something else? Uh, I added that. 
or something else Dave added. Um, it, it depends on how much heft. If it's just a little bit more body, it's hard to beat xanthan for convenience. Um, I'm generally not a big fan of a lot of modified starches. They tend to really sort of dull and round out the flare flavor. My personal preference would be go to a gelan-based fluid gel because you can really change the, the, the body to and dial it into whatever you want without making it sort of gloopy or slimy or, or cloying, um, which tends to be a problem with xanthan or, and starch. You, you agree with that, Dave? You've, you've done a lot of this. Yeah, yeah. The only issue you got to remember with uh, gelan, you'll probably have to make the like a stiff gel Gelan fluid gel, like water. Ba- I've had difficulty getting gelan to set in extremely high, uh, uh, like ionic situations, like kimchi, for instance. I tried a bunch of different kimchis and I couldn't get it to set right. Have uh, you been able to do it with agar, which usually is a little more tolerant? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe <clears throat> I was I was developing it for a, a gelan recipe, which is why I kept on trying it with gelan. Uh, so I never tried it with with agar. Probably agar would be a lot more tolerant. I don't know about the long-term stability of an agar fluid gel versus gelan, though. I would, uh, yeah, I would no, guess that gelan would be more stable in the long run. Gel would be better, and I, I suspect you could I mean you're right, especially when you have lots of salts around things and get complicated, but usually not something that you can't solve with a little bit of sodium hexametaphosphate. Yeah, yeah. All right, that would, be, that would be my voice, my choice. But if if you just need a little bit more body, uh, xanthan, it's easy. All right, I'm gonna. Here's what we're gonna have to do because we're gonna run out of time. I'm gonna rip through this next question, and then we're gonna. Or should we do the pet peeves first? Pet peeves first. Sure. I like pet peeves. All right, pet peeves. I asked uh, last week. Someone asked us last week about pet peeves, right? And oh, before that, I want to give a shout out. Aaron Morgan wrote in about last week. What's going on to get? We had a, a caller in last week who had a b- bunch of Mountain Dew that was like 20 years old. Wanted to make it in a Mountain Dew wine. Needed to get rid of the benzoate uh, and was told to add HCl to it to get rid of it. But I didn't know what the reaction was. And Aaron Morgan wrote in on the Twitter: HCl plus sodium benzoate equals NaCl plus benzoic acid, which is a solid at room temperature. It can be filtered out on filter paper. Thanks, Aaron, for that. Uh, and then uh, we had a question: What are some good kitchen peeves? And so these are the ones we wrote in uh, that were written in uh, this morning and before, and we'll just go over and see what we think here. Uh, Joshua Galliano, uh, the cooking kid, writes in, uh, towels on shoulders of cooks, not courtesy wiping bottles after use, especially of honey or molasses. What do you think? Uh, misuse of kitchen side towels just completely drives me nuts. They're, they're filthy. They should be banned from the kitchen. Yeah, well, well so D- David uh, Shopik wrote in, why all the hate for the towels? And then Joshua wrote back, if the towel's dirty, a guest can see it instantly. If they're plating food, filth from the towel. Filth from the towel can get in the food. Accurate. Uh, Brandon uh, um, Balsley wrote in, I think my biggest one is when cooks try to show other cooks who has a bigger beep in very passive-aggressive ways. What do you think about that? <laughs> Um, those don't tend to be the kinds of kitchens I do well in. Yeah, yeah. And he also added, I'll hire someone with clean fingernails and no resume before someone with dirty ones that has done a season at El Bully. The Bully. Uh, yeah, what do you think? Agree? Uh, always. Also added, uh, does not appreciate people drinking out of delis. I think he means what I call quartz. Uh, calling people you work with closely chef and wearing aprons to the washroom. Never wear freaking a- aprons to the washroom. But I have to say that I, even at home sometimes I drink out of quartz. But I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on the hating of drinking out of quartz? Uh, I, I'm, I'll use whatever vessel suits the purpose, so deli cups are fine by me. I mean, what, what I always heard was the reason uh, to drink out of quart containers is, is that you could tell the DOH when they showed up that, you, that that was a cooking ingredient and that they weren't drinking anything. Oh, that's interesting. No, I've never, I've never heard that one before. I mean, that's what I was always told is that you know, if you have a cup 
on the counter, you're obviously drinking in the kitchen. If you have something that's there that's in something that is a cooking storage vessel, then perhaps you are not drinking it. Uh, that I'll buy that. That's plausible. Anyway, Deborah Reed wrote in, seeing a cook in whites on public, transpit, tra- public transit. Oh, my goodness, don't ever do that. I hate seeing people outside of the kitchen wearing their cooking stuff. It's the same as seeing somebody on the streets in scrubs from a hospital. Like, what are you doing? The whole point. I, I, I was just going to say this. I drive past the University of Washington Hospital every day on my way to Chef Steps. And Chef, Step, Chef Whites are bad enough, but to see people, like, going to work in their scrubs outside is just, like, mind-boggling. Now, yeah, these are professional uniforms of cleanliness. To have them outside where it's known filthy, I don't even care whether it's real filth or not. This is a game of perception, people. Perception, which is why you also shouldn't be smoking outside uh, in your in your uniform or any of that stuff. In my in my opinion, my opinion. Uh, John Rivet writes in: not covering a pot of sauce that is clearly spattering all over the stove and then leaving the mess. That sucks. Right? Yeah, no, no, no. You're going to become a hated person if you do that. Oh, yeah, to completely hate it. Well, so some of these are like pro kitchen and some are home kitchen. I think that applies to any, anything, right? Yeah, uh, no, I, just th- I just think clean up as you go and don't leave a mess for somebody else. That's just, that's just good etiquette. Yeah. You know, you weren't raised by a pack of wolves, people. Well, maybe. We don't know. Uh, Brian Garrick writes in, one, following recipes blindly without any thought, unless your chef tells you to. Uh, and read it through people, uh, read it through people and think before cooking. Two, pre-ground pepper. Uh, you know what? I had to use pre-ground pepper in a demo once because I needed pepper and it's the only thing they had and someone saw there was pre-ground pepper and called me freaking out on it. I'm still embarrassed to this day because I detest pre-ground pepper. Well, so it, it, when I was at the Fat Duck, we had to, right before service, because Heston wanted, wanted ground pepper of different sizes, it all had to be ground fresh. This was on my station. And I had to fill ramekins with fine, sifted, medium, coarse, all had to be ground fresh, and they had to be changed every hour uh, you know, through, throughout service. What a complete nightmare, but it makes a massive difference. Old pepper just tastes old. Yeah, old pepper. That's my next band. Uh, Matt Wood write in, tongs or any other dirty utensil hanging off apron strings a la Wyatt Earp. And I think that fits in uh, a lot with the, with the side towels, right? What is it, a utility belt? Yeah. Oh, I like that idea, though. Oh, my God. Have you ever seen anyone in the real life wearing that butcher belt with the knife holders in it? I have, actually, in Portland, but then it's Portland, right? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm not going to touch that one. Uh, Seattle versus Portland. Hashtag, whatever you call that crap. Uh, Omid uh, Tavale writes in, anyone who steps into the kitchen wearing cologne or perfume and going for a smoke break in apron whites. We already hit that, that, but yeah, don't, like, how are you supposed to smell food if you yourself smell like flowers and, like, whatever else, musk? Just think about some, it's, it's basically just chemical weapon assault by your colleagues. Yeah, I hate it. And I don't even – I like salmon and bacon, but I don't really like handling it that much and cooking – I don't like the act of cooking with it because I know that it's going to be hard to get that off my hands, and I'm going to think that everything else has that scent in it for a couple of hours no matter how much I scrub. Yeah, we'll worry about I, – I, I, don't, I don't get perfume in the kitchen. Uh, Stas hates that super big, right, Stas? Yes. Yes. Uh, Scott Malloy writes in, leaving labels on deli containers. Uh, that sucks. Cooks afraid to wash their own dishes and people uh, who go down because they're afraid to ask for help. Going down, by the way, meaning uh, you're in the weeds, you're cooking a lot, and your station crashes because you were afraid to ask for help because you were just too damn proud or too damn afraid. What do you think about that? Uh, I, why would you do that to everyone? 
you know, the, it, you know, this is a, this has always been a big mantra. You know, cooking at a professional level is all about teamwork. So, you know, either somebody on the team or, or they have no business being in that kitchen. Right, because it, it, like if you're proud and you let yourself crash because you're too proud to ask for help, it shafts every single person. It only takes one person to mess up the whole meal, which is one of the weird things about cooking. Uh, Henry Prontnicki writes in, uh, how about those that make the rules and are supposed to enforce them being the first to break them? Ooh, nobody likes that. Uh, Ian Bowden wrote in, whistling drives me nuts. It's just, it's as distracting as hell, and there's an old French superstition about it as well. A long time ago, my mentor would smack me in the back of the head for whistling, or anything for that matter. What do you think about the whistling? Uh, so my co-founder, Grant Curley, is a world-class whistler, so uh, we've we become quite taken with that, actually. So it's more like a soundtrack. Yeah, it's just it's a sort of just cadence for the day. And we need to get Ian and Grant in a room and have this like ha- we need to have this out. We need to, this needs to be had out. Uh, uh, as long as we broadcast that, I'm I'm on board. Sure, Sarah Sarah Balzac writes in when someone uh, tastes your food and tells you it should be something uh, other than what you made it that would change it entirely. Like why don't you make your hard candy more chewy, or you should make the medium well steak more well done. You hate that stuff. I hate that. I hate that stuff. It's like yeah, that's bad. I mean like that's obviously bad. Uh... Shuna Leiden wrote in, disorganized chefs, cavalier cooks, smoking outside in whites, aprons in the toilet. Ooh, I hate that. Uh, CDP without prep lists and not labeling. It's a good list, pro kitchen list, right? Yeah. Jeremiah Bullfrog uh, wrote in, wet salt. I also hate the wet salt, which is why I use saline solution at the bar. And ideas and food chimed in. Also, dirty salt in response. What are your thoughts on the, uh, on the salt getting wet and dirty there? Um. I'm I'm actually sort of wondering what they mean by dirty salt, like you know, filthy salt from just handling. That's yeah, I think like stuff. schmutz. You know how like you know you were you were you were sprinkling on meat and then flipping the meat, and that little particle of meat on your finger got in the salt and it's sitting there in the kosher salt. Look, this is easy. Dirty is dirty. Yeah, yeah, and bad. That it's bad. Uh, John uh, John Darragon wrote in: not having cold food on cold plates, hot food on hot plates, unlabeled food containers in the fridge, and not turning pot handles sideways so that you bump into them when you walk past. And people who store knives in drawers with other things. Hate. Duh. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, Landon McDowell writes in: cold ketchup. Yeah. Why put your you're just wasting fridge space with your cold ketchup? Ketchup don't go bad. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. I don't like cold maple syrup either, although I understand the merits of keeping it in the fridge to stop mold growth. Although mine never grows mold because I use it that fast. Um, That's why we have microwaves, so we can warm it up. Right. uh, But yeah, exactly. Uh, Elliot Papineau wrote in, I do not like the crust between the handle and blade of a spatula. I don't like dirty faucet knobs, which is why I use foot pedals. And I don't like containers that are put away that are not fully dry. I'll add to that. I don't like it when people use containers without smelling them first or any vessel you put food in. Smell it first. I hate that when people don't do that you know how much good food and, and liquor is ruined by not sniffing the freaking container before you use it uh <laughs> jack the horse brushing crumbs on the floor and not replacing that damn thing you emptied what do you think obviously you hate that yeah yeah that's just that's just, that's just being an ass <laughs> yeah b ross right in any stainless steel on cutting boards it freaks me out thanks to at chef keller and my uh friends uh, at my stage at per se what's the thing with uh, stainless on cutting boards do you know about that uh, one I- no, I've never heard that one. That That's a thing. All right, B. Ross, send me more information. I must know what this is all about. Uh, and kitchen, not having kitchen labels. Label everything. Use just enough tape and not too much pound tape abuse. Uh, Pat Sheeran wrote in, uh, pots on cutting boards. Hates that. Cooks who are late. Uh, barely, organ- uh, barely on time. Un- an unorganized dish area. Uh, and... Uh, uh, a non-condensed cooler. This is, I didn't get the uh, paragraphination in here, unfortunately. Non-condensed cooler. Uh, also, no notes in their notebooks. Hates that. 
Pat Sheeran, good man out in Chicago. Well, so I'm, I, I got one there. He had the pots on the cutting board. You know, you know what I see a lot, especially home cooks, uh, grocery bags on the cutting board. That's oh, really? Filthy. Yeah, you do you, it? You, yeah, you put them in there. You put them in your car. You drive them around. Then you come home, put them right on the cutting board. Yeah. Well, and the pots also like leave vis- vis- visible filth. Visible filth, and you know, and they burn them. People, people, yeah. You know what they used to do at the SCI? They used to stick because the students didn't use the flat tops that often. They would stick plastic bottles of ingredients, sometimes oil, on flat tops. On flat tops. What is that? An IQ test? Flat tops. Hey, while I was working there, it happened more than three times. Caught fire more than twice. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Brandon uh, Balsley wrote in one more time, uh, I'm guilty of at least, at least three of these things that have been mentioned at all times. Uh, we're going to have to uh, head out. Thanks so much uh, f- uh, for uh, Chris uh, at Cookie uh, at Cookie at Chef Steps. Uh, we love you. Come back uh, whenever uh, to can, be on the show. Can I, can, I give a, can I give a quick plug, Dave? Uh, yeah, but cool? before you do, I want people to know that Howard, I need every, Howard is traveling, uh, who write, wrote, it, wrote in, is traveling to Europe. Uh, in about a month, Western Europe, and he wants uh, to take in the sight, sound, and the food. He's having a hard time deciding where he's going, so he wants everyone, uh, you, know, you know, listeners here, to tell him uh, where to go for the best culinary pilgrimages, pilgrimages, Epicurean experiences, must-try dishes, or equipment shops in Western Europe. So that's broad, but let's get that uh, information in. Uh, Jeff Stenjem, I'm going to answer your question on Plastic Wrap on Twitter. Uh, I got an answer for you, and if not, I'll answer it again next week when we come back. Uh, so go. Do your plug. Okay. Uh, check out ChefSteps.com. We've got a new course that we we created. It's basically what every first-year line cook should know and every home enthusiast should know about cooking tender cuts of meat and seafood. Steak to salmon, how to cook meats like a pro. Sweet. Go check it out. Chris Young, thank you. Thank you, Dave. All right. This has been Cooking Issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.